Well, everybody, it's Chris Haggiseth. I'm here again. Uh, of course I'm here again. Where else would I be if I wasn't talking to you? Anyway, uh, I have a very, very special interview person for you today. As I got into realizing that I could live with Parkinson's without taking medication, a name came to my, con to my attention, uh, a fellow by the name of John Pepper. I love that name. Uh, because this this guy, uh, th there's a pepper about him. He he he's got he's a spicy guy. He's got he's got get up and go. And I found out about John in Norman Doidge's book, and I said I got to get in touch with him at this man. And fortunately, he had a website. I studied it more. I got in touch, and he and I have been communicating, because. We have something very special and very much in common, and that is it is possible for many people to have Parkinson's disease and managing it without using prescription medications. John is on the line with me right now, and I'm going to have him tell his story. John, welcome. Morning. It's my morning. Sorry, your morning, my evening. Yes, I'm sitting here having my first cup of coffee, and you're probably getting ready for your evening meal. We're going out to see a choir this evening in about three quarters of an hour. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just for your, just for the information of our listeners, John lives in outside of Cape Town, South Africa. And, of course, I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado. John, let's cut to the chase. Tell, me, tell us your story. Tell us about your Parkinson's disease and particularly how you came to stop using medication. Right. It's very simple. My story started in 1963, 53 however many years ago, 1963, I found that I couldn't throw a ball properly. And I don't know anybody that would go to their doctor to tell them I can't throw a ball properly. What's wrong with me? You know, I never gave it a second thought. I hadn't thrown a ball for 10 years since I left school. So that's what I put it down to. I never had time to play sports, so it didn't worry me. Then it, that was followed um, within a couple of years with um, uh, two new symptoms. In 1968, a third sy a symptom came, and that was that I couldn't write properly. I was busy. I, I was running my own printing business in those days, and I bought an order in uh, and made out the work ticket, which was my job every night to make out tickets for all the orders I got. All two of them, and um, <laughs> and uh, put them into the factory the next day, and they produced the biggest order that I'd ever taken. And this is Murphy's law, and the order came back because they had printed it the wrong size and the wrong colour. So we had to print it again, and it nearly bankrupted my little company. And the reason was that my writing was so poor that even I couldn't read it, and. I think most doctors, therefore, must suffer from Parkinson's. <laughs> they, 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 they just haven't been diagnosed yet. So we had to do this job over again, and my partner came up to me. He was basically a, a partner, 50% partner, but I put the money in. He brought the, the printing knowledge. He is a wonderful guy. My name's Pepper, and his name is Salter. So oh, fine. Salter Salt and Pepper in business together. He came up to my office and he was going to kill me. He said he was going to kill me. He looked like he was going to kill me. And he told me what I'd done. And, of course, I was very contrite. And I was a bit annoyed that he should speak to me in such a manner. But it was such a, a serious problem. 
And he said to me, don't you ever fill in an order again. Give it to somebody else. We'll employ somebody else. I started to write that very day in block letters. Now, year on year, more symptoms came, but nobody ever thought of Parkinson's disease until I started to shuffle. 58 years of age at that time in 1992, when I walked into my doctor's office and he looked at me and he said, what are you, what are you here for? And I told him it had nothing to do with Parkinson's. So he said, John, I want you to go and see a physician. So I went to see this physician. I walked into his office and he looked up at me and he says, I want you to go outside, please, and come back in again. So I said, what have I done? <laughs> I went outside, I closed the door, I knocked on the door and waited until he said, come in. <laughs> and I came in. I had no idea what was that was all about. I walked to his desk, I sat down. He had a fairly large office, he could afford it. And um, I sat down and he, he asked me a few questions and he said, I want you to go and see a neurologist. He told me nothing, said nothing. I went to see the neurologist a few days later. And this guy, as I walked into the door and I walked to his desk and he said, you've got Parkinson's disease. Now, these are my doctor and the physician had obviously told him. And he saw me walking and he saw my mask face and he, he, he knew that I had Parkinson's, as they did, but they couldn't, they couldn't um, diagnose me. He, only a neurologist can diagnose you with Parkinson's. He told me the, the usual story. It's a, a degenerative disease for which there's no cure. You will slowly get more and more rigid until you become bedridden and then you die. I said, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. What a thing to be told just just like that you know no warning or anything like that so i went back and i cried my eyes out at work that morning and um, well the rest that happened after that for the next two years he prescribed cinnamon and simitrel which i took religiously for two years and which he said i reacted favorably to but in two years i had been going to the gym for those two years for 90 minutes a day having previously gone for only 60 minutes before diagnosis. I assumed be, being a movement disorder that the more more I moved, the better it would be and the longer I would stay normal. At, at the time of being diagnosed, I decided to retire because I was not in a good shape anymore. I, I couldn't run a big business. It was employing 1,600 people at the time. It was a large business. I was not capable of doing the job and I couldn't speak properly, I couldn't walk properly, I couldn't talk properly, you know, speaking, talking. I was really in a bad way, so I decided on his recommendation that I would retire. I didn't retire entirely, I carried on doing some computer programming, but the day-to-day -day running of the business I handed over to a new guy who's, who I'd employed four or five years before then, because I was ready to retire anyway. I say so gave up the job and I went to the gym in now for six for ninety minutes every day, six days of the week. You're At working out too much. I'm well. I'm a workaholic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of those two years, my sim my symptoms had got worse so much quicker, and I was going downhill so fast. I decided to stop going to the gym. It wasn't doing me any good, and getting up at half past five in the morning to go to the gym is not pleasant, you know, especially in the winter time. Not that we have winters like you, but it's, it's cold anyway. 
I gave up the gym and my late wife, um, Shirley, who had been wonderful you know, in all the years with the Parkinson's, and she worked with me in the company, so she knew me at work, at home, everywhere. She said to me, John, you know, you, you started going to the gym when you hurt your back, and it was going to the gym and strengthening your core muscles that got you out of that problem. She said, now you're going to stop going to the gym. You've got Parkinson's. You want back problems again. And I said, I won't have any back problems. I've had two discs removed already. What can go wrong now? So she said, uh, I've been going to, she, I knew she'd been going to something called Run Walk for Life. Run Walk for Life has one goal, and that is to get people to move as fast as they can, either running or walking, just for health reasons, nothing else. In that two and a half years that she'd been going to Walk for Life, she had lost 14 kilograms in weight. She had come off all her blood pressure pills. She'd come off all her antidepressant pills. Now, I always joke when I tell this because I can't understand why a woman married to a man like me would be depressed. <laughs> Um, so we argued about this, not, not fighting, arguing. We, we discussed this. I couldn't work out how, in her mind, walking for nine hours a week is, is not as good as walking for three hours a week because that's what they do maximum in Walk for Life, three hours a week, three one-hour sessions every second day. So after three months, I said to her, I'm going to join Walk for Life just to prove to you that you are wrong. Mm -hmm. well, that's a good reason, yeah. It's a good reason. That's a very good reason. Yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we had a very good relationship. After four months of walking, my time when I started was ten and, more than 10 and a half minutes per kilometer. And it came down in four months to less than nine minutes a kilometer. And that was the first time in many years, having gone to the gym all those years, you know, you, all these weights on the machines and the speed on the treadmill and all the other things, they were gradually coming down after a certain time. And now all of a sudden, I'm going back up. I'm going, getting better. I couldn't believe what was happening to me. Right, cutting a long story short, four years later, nobody would ever know that I had Parkinson's anymore. I had been put onto a, taken off the cinema in 1994 when I started going to the gym, uh, when I started doing the gym for 90 minutes. I was on Cinemat and Simitrol for those two years. And when I left the gym, my neurologist put me onto an MAOB inhibitor. Just that, nothing else. And I took that for the next eight years. In, 19, in 2002, the end of that eight-year period, I couldn't see why I needed to take medication anymore. I, I was living a normal life. Nobody could ever see that I had Parkinson's, although my neurologist said I still had Parkinson's. I wrote my first book. From that day onwards, my life turned upside down because at the time I had been chairman or president of the South African Parkinson Association. When I wrote the book, I gave a copy to three different neurologists at an information day that I had organized. And in the book was my story that you have read. And within a few months, I don't, can't remember exactly how many months, I had been asked to resign as chairman of the association. I had been then asked to resign as vice chairman of the association. And um, I, has, I was being summarily booted out of the Parkinson Association. No, with, with false 
accusations. I don't have to repeat the accusations. There were four accusations made which were totally, totally false and proven to be so. So there I was out in the cold and nobody wants, well, nobody interested in reading my book, nobody interested in even talking about it because those very doctors said, I don't have Parkinson's disease, therefore I never had Parkinson's disease and I shouldn't be going around telling people that I've got Parkinson's disease. So it was very difficult to get anybody to listen to me because all the doctors were saying, you don't have Parkinson's. That's without even examining me because my doctor certainly cannot say that I don't have Parkinson's. They, you know, diagnose me and prescribe medication for me. So, you know, it's, it's a fiasco. Then only a few years ago, I wrote to Dr. Norman Doidge, told him my story, sent him a copy of my book, and he couldn't get to see me quick enough. He came over from Canada to South Africa. I was prepared to go and see him, but he said, no, I'm coming to see you. I want to speak to your doctor. I want to speak to your neurologists, all, both neurologists that I had at that time, and I want to speak to the people you say that you've helped. So within a few weeks, whatever it was, he came over. I had organized a meeting with my doctor. He sat in my doctor's office the whole day reading my case file, which is two inches thick, the last 20 odd years of, the, of um, being my doctor, and 25 years, I think it was. When he'd finished that, he satisfied himself that what I had said happened in the first place. He then went to see the second neurologist, um, the first one having um, immigrated to America in the meantime, so he wasn't there, but my file was still there with the second one. Uh, he, he went right through that file in the doctor's office and then he interviewed the doctor as well as he interviewed my doctor, my GP. And then we went to see a third um, neurologist um, who has spoken to me in the, in the mid-90s, I think it was. And uh, no, I beg your pardon, 2005, I went to see Jodie Pearl, and she's in Norman's um, video um, that, that he's done. He also went through her files first and then satisfied himself that what I was saying was true. He interviewed her. We then, I had organized to take him to three meetings, one in Johannesburg, one in Port Elizabeth, and one in Cape Town, are over a thousand miles apart. We held these meetings with people who had been helped by what they had learned from me. And he, without me being present at when he had meetings, he met with and spoke to a whole lot of people who had been helped and could own waiting to tell him how they've been helped and what they're doing now and how they're walking, etc., and what their medications are and so forth. So he, he, he spoke to quite a large number of people he went back to Canada and he either had started writing his book or he wrote my story almost immediately. And of course, when the, when the book was published in 2015, it's, it's, it's chapter two in the book. And um, then all of a sudden, I became legitimate. Well, everybody, pardon me for interrupting John like I just did, but I try to keep my podcasts down in time so you're more apt to listen to them. And his story has got more value than trying to rush it into just one podcast because there's a lot that has happened. And he has a view on the Parkinson world that I'm beginning to develop. Just the other day, I got a fellow from Los Angeles that I started to work with. And he said Parkinson's for four years. 
He's five foot ten. He weighs two hundred and forty pounds. And no neurologist has ever mentioned the word exercise to him ever. And his mother happened to hear me at a do a talk here in Colorado, got in touch with him and said, You gotta do this. And I I can't believe that somebody would see a neurologist and the neurologist wouldn't tell them the importance of exercise. In fact, I'm going to be writing a book here. I'm going to be writing it this summer, but I'm going to get people like John and uh, Colin Potter and a few other people and anybody who's doing well or beyond well. And one of the final chapters, I'm going to say, if a neurologist does not give you an exercise program at first diagnosis, I believe they are guilty of negligence, which can result in harm, which translates to the word medical malpractice. So, John, we'll pick up this conversation here and uh, when your schedule and mine allows because you got too much important stuff to say. Well, there you go, everybody. John Pepper, the Republic of South Africa. Anyway, um, be a week and we'll hear from John again. Until then, uh, find a way to exercise. Keep your mood up. Don't believe that everything you're told by the traditional medicine, you might be able to do better than they think. Bye-bye.